19, page 493 of your book of praise. There we find a summary of God's word as follows. The question is asked, why is it added and sits at the right hand of God? Christ ascended into heaven to manifest himself there as head of his church, through whom the Father governs all things. How does the glory of Christ, our head, benefit us? First, by his Holy Spirit, he pours out heavenly gifts upon us, his members. Second, by his power, he defends and preserves us against all enemies. What comfort is it to you that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? In all my sorrow and persecution, I lift up my head and eagerly await as judge from heaven the very same person who before has submitted himself to the judgment of God for my sake and has removed all the curse from me. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. After the sermon, we will respond with the singing of Psalm 98, the stanzas 1, 2, and 4. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, and that includes you, boys and girls, this afternoon we have come to that question and answer of the catechism that deals with the third and fourth step of the exaltation of Christ, with the fact that Christ is now seated at the right hand of God. What does that mean? In our minds, someone who is seated is idle. After a long day's work, a man comes home and seats himself in his recliner to have a good and well-deserved rest. He is seated in his easy chair to store up energy for the time that he goes into action again. Some people have that image of Christ as well. When they think about the Lord Jesus Christ, they think about the things that he did and said while he was on earth, especially the last three years that he was on earth. And those three years are especially the ones that are recorded in the Gospels. And there, in God's Word, we learn about his travels, about his miracles, about his words, and about his suffering and his death. After that, he ascended into heaven to come again, leaving his church behind. From then on in, the church was left more or less on her own. Christ's real presence will not be experienced again until he comes again. But is that the way it really is? For in this way of thinking, it is as if Christ is now in heaven to take a little rest while he is seated on his recliner beside 
the Father. As if he is now lounging there beside the Father, enjoying his victory after all the work that he has done while on earth. He's having a rest until he once again will rouse himself from his seat in order to descend to earth to claim that final victory. At times it may seem like that. For we certainly have our struggles and our difficulties here on earth. Just look at the state of the church. There's always fighting going on. There's much sin. There are many factions. There's much unfaithfulness. It is enough to throw up your hands and to give up in despair. And we wonder where Christ is in all this. We can't wait until he comes again so that he can go into action. That's why it is a good thing that this afternoon we are reminded once again that the Lord Jesus Christ is our Emmanuel. That means that he is God with us. For the fact that he is now seated at the right hand of God does not mean that he is now inactive. No, on the contrary, as the Catechism says, he is at the right hand of the Father as head of the church through whom the Father governs all things. It is put in the present tense. And so whatever is done in the body, that is, the church, is also done to the head. And in this way, Christ today is also actively Involved in the church, as we will see. So let us listen to the preaching of God's Word as summarized under the following theme Christ Jesus is seated at the right hand of God for the benefit of the church. There are three points. First of all, we will see that He rules as head of the church. Second, that He fights to protect His church. And finally, that He preserves, that He judges to preserve His church. So first then, he rules as head of the church. In the answer to question 50, we are told that Christ ascended into heaven to manifest himself there as head of the church. In English, the word manifest means to express or to display or to exhibit oneself someplace. However, in the original edition of the Heidelberg Catechism, in the Latin Another word is used, which means to declare. He declares himself there as head of the church. It's a declaration. And a declaration is always verbal. But with this word, we only have a partial explanation of the exalted Christ's activity. For indeed, he speaks. He speaks not only through the pages of the Bible, but he also speaks directly to his heavenly Father. He is, as you will remember from the previous Lord's Day, our advocate. That means that he speaks on our behalf. And therein we see already that his seating at the right hand of God the Father is not a passive activity. He is actively pleading the cause of each and every sheep that belongs to him. He is constantly declaring to the Father what he has done and how he has covered our sins. And he does not stop doing so. And he will continue to do that until the end of this age. 
But he not only speaks, he also does something else. And that especially comes to the fore in the Dutch and in the German edition. It says there that he ascended in order to prove himself as head of the church. As head, he is active. He proves by his actions that he is the head of the church. For what does it mean that Christ is now seated at the right hand of the Father? To be seated at someone's right hand refers to the fact that someone has been given a place of greatest honor. That was the custom in the East. Most beautiful example of that is given in 1 Kings 2 verse 19 in reference to the honor Solomon bestows upon his mother Bathsheba. She comes to Solomon to ask him a favor concerning Solomon's brother Adonijah. It's a formal request. And what does Solomon do? Well, he gives his mother a seat on his right hand. He does that in order to show that he has her in highest esteem. All his words and actions show that great esteem that he has for his mother. And it says there in that text, when Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adjuniah, the king stood up to meet her, bowed down to her, and sat down on his throne. He had a throne brought for the king's mother, and she sat down at his right hand. And it's also in that way that we ought to see the position of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is said to be at the right hand of God the Father to indicate the high esteem that he now has with the Father. But you may ask, and some of your children may also wonder about this, exactly where is Christ's or where is God's right hand and where, where is it located? Do we see that literally? Well, God's right hand is everywhere, so to speak. For you see, God himself is everywhere. He is omnipresent. That means he is everywhere present. That's also what we confessed in the previous Lord's Day. His divinity has no limits and is present everywhere. Again, this is based on scripture. For it says in Psalm 139, verse 7 and 8, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. God is everywhere present. He's present here right now. And so is his son, who is himself God. He is not on his reclining chair having a snooze until the day of judgment. No, he too is everywhere. And that is why Stephen, in his vision just before his death, also says, as we know from Acts 7, verse 56, that he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He is standing there, ready for action. And not only is he pictured in the Scriptures as standing, 
It also says about him in Revelation 2, verse 1, that he walks among the seven lampstands. And those seven lampstands refer to the churches here on earth. And that also then applies to the churches of today. Christ does not just keep himself aloof from his churches. No, he walks among them. He leads his church and he guides her. As John Calvin said in his commentary to the Ephesians, he did not go to heaven in order to count the stars. The modern theologians of this day and age know only the Jesus who walked on earth 2,000 years ago. They devote volumes upon volumes of books to their speculations about what or about who that historical Jesus was. Indeed, modern man wants to pay homage to that individual who lived so many years ago. Well, many people will agree that uh, Jesus of Nazareth had great impact on earth. Movies and musicals are made about him. He is known as Jesus Christ, superstar. Also, the Muslims honor him as a great prophet, and they put him on the same level as Muhammad. But they do not know that a Jesus of Nazareth, who lived 2,000 years ago, is alive today. And he doesn't just live in the pages of the Bible. He is not just an historical figure who lived and died. No, he lives today. And he is actively involved in all of creation. He is also actively involved in your life. For he is not only a man, but God true God, the only one whom we must serve. He cannot be compared to some historical figure in the past. And he is also today still actively involved in the church, which is his body. That's clear from what happened. For example, on the road to Damascus, when Saul heard a voice from heaven, which said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? That was, as we know from that same passage, the voice of the Lord Jesus himself. And he spoke these words after he had ascended to the Father. And he uses the present tense. Why are you persecuting me? For you see, Saul was persecuting the church. And he saw Saul's activities as not just being against the church, but against himself. When you persecute the body, you automatically persecute the head. You cannot separate the two. That was the case then, and that is the case today. Christ manifests himself on the right hand of God the Father as head of the church. What a wonderful thing that is. On that first Easter morning, the Father went to the grave of where Jesus' body was laid, and he rose him from the dead. He lifted him up. And subsequently, he had him ascend into heaven to have him take his rightful place beside the Father in glory. But what exactly does that mean for us today, for his church, for his body? The New Testament church has existed for 2,000 years. But look at the battering that that body has taken over all these years. The church is more divided than ever. 
Heresies abound. You see unfaithfulness everywhere. Also within the Reformed community, there is much division, there is much pain, there is much sorrow. And at times we despair. We don't see it anymore. Why does it have to be this way? Indeed, Satan does not cease in his attacks. He attacks the church from without and within. And that attack is evident everywhere. We see Satan constantly at work also here in this local church. Sometimes you wonder whether or not he indeed rules in our midst. You look at the people of the church and you see them for the sinners that they are. But then we have to remember what Easter is all about. Easter is all about the victory of Christ for the church. Also for this church. Christ rules. Present tense. He is alive. He is busy gathering his church. And he has done so ever since the beginning of time. He did so during the Old Testament times, and he does so today. But what is the church? The church consists of those who time and again humble themselves before the Lord their God because of their sins. The church consists of those people who expect their salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ alone. It consists of those who are battle-weary. Not because of the sins of others, but because of their own sins. They see the many ways in which they themselves transgress the laws of God and yet know themselves to be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb of God. The church here on earth is the church under the cross. For Christ did not promise us peace and joy. He did not say that his church would be devoid of conflict and divisions on the contrary. This is what he said about the future of the members of the church in Mark 13, verse 12 and 13. And brother will deliver up brother to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved." Christ bore the cross for us. He was surrounded by conflict, not because he wanted it, but because Satan wanted it, and he still wants it. But Christ came through it all. He came through it all for us, for you and for me, so that now as his church, we can also take up his cross. But for us... It is much different. We do not have to win that battle on our own, for we could not. All you have to do is to follow your Lord and Savior and believe in him and hang on to him with all your strength, with all your soul and mind. For the Lord Jesus Christ is our victorious head. Our head is safely in heaven. And that means that we as his body are also safe. As long as we belong to that body. And the praise is to God alone. 
He makes sure that there will always be a people left here on earth to worship him. And he will do so to the end of his age. And the Catechism also says something else about his church gathering work. It says that he defends and preserves us against all enemies. And here we see once again the exalted Christ at work, for he showers his gifts upon his church. We come to the second point. How does he defend and preserve her? Well, Lord's Day 21 tells us that he does so by his word and spirit. More will be said about that when we deal with that Lord's Day. But note this for now. Two gifts are given to his church. And the first one is his Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus promised when he ascended on high that he would not leave his church alone. And he did not do so. He sent his Spirit. And that Holy Spirit he sends to you and to me. And that Holy Spirit, that gift of the Holy Spirit, is a constant gift. That spirit is not some historical figure either, somebody from the past. Through that Holy Spirit, you are made a new creature time and again. Through that Holy Spirit, you are given strength to go on in this life. Through that Holy Spirit, you receive the strength not to throw in the towel. Through that Holy Spirit, you are made aware of your own sinfulness. And you're also made aware of how wonderful it is to belong to his people, to his church, in spite of the things that are wrong with it. For his spirit rules here. Christ himself rules here. Satan does not, even if it seems like that at times. For what are the works of the devil? What are the tools of the devil? They're this, anger. Resentment, the twisting of words, slander, dissension, enmity, party spirit, and the like. Those things are all the work of the devil. And in this church, we proclaim the victory over all of those things. Even though we see much evil around us, even in this church, Satan does not rule here. Our risen Lord does. And that is why we must also proclaim that victory in our own lives. And so examine your own hearts. Also with a view to the Lord's Supper that we will be celebrating the Lord willing next week. Don't think about the evil of others. Think about your own evil. To what extent do those kinds of tools of the devil still belong to you? Second gift to the church is God's word. In God's word you will find a mirror into which you must look. And there you will find in the pages of that book the kinds of person that you and I all are. Only those who have allowed the Holy Spirit in their hearts will understand what the scriptures are all about. God's word is not about pointing the fingers at others, how sinful they are. It is about pointing the finger at yourself. God's word convicts you. 
and convinces you of the truth about God and the truth about yourself. You are a creature in need of redemption. Ultimately, God's word cannot be separated from his spirit, for his spirit breathes in his word. In question and answer 51, we are told that by his Holy Spirit, he pours out his heavenly gifts to us. What a beautiful way of putting it. He pours them out. It's like standing in a shower. God's gifts are poured down on us like drops of water from above. But in order to receive those gifts, you must also place yourself under that shower. And do you know what that means? That means that you're also put to work. You have to move. You can't remain on your recliner, so to speak. And what are some of those gifts, those gifts of the Holy Spirit? Well, the Bible mentions many of them. Think about what Paul says, for example, in Corinthians, in his first letter, in chapter 12, verse 7 and following. Paul writes to them, Now there are varieties of gifts. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. And those are some of the gifts given to individual members of the congregation. Each one has his own abilities and talents. And those are God's gifts to you. Your personal gifts. In Ephesians 4, Paul also writes about different gifts. He speaks there about the gifts to the whole church. Paul writes in verses, in the verses 11 through 13, And his gifts were that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul mentions here the gifts of office bearers, the gift of preaching. These are direct gifts from God. God has equipped people to carry out their task here on earth. And those gifts are not to be rejected, brothers and sisters, but those gifts are to be cherished. Do you also do that? Do you also cherish them? Or do you hold the office bearers here in contempt? Do you belittle them or ridicule them? Is it one of your favorite pastimes to complain and to discredit the office bearers? What goes on in your home? Well, if that's what goes on in your home, then you despise the gifts of God. And if you persist in such a sin, then you do not truly belong to the church of God. For then God's spirit does not dwell in your midst. For let us remember, God's church gathering work is his work. And he is the one who will bring it all to a glorious end. We come to the final point. The Old Testament church based her hope on the coming Messiah. 
The people waited for hundreds and hundreds of years. And then finally the Messiah came. He came and he died and he rose again from the dead and he ascended into heaven. But congregation, he's going to come again. And so we too are a church in waiting. And that is why you and I must also be prepared. We may not be like those five foolish maidens who were waiting for the bridegroom. They were not prepared like the wise ones who took enough oil for their lamps. The foolish maidens thought that life was one great big party. They were seeking their own pleasure in life. They did not think about the time the bridegroom would appear. And that is why the scriptures often refer to his second coming as the parousia. That word connotes more than just the future. It also includes the presence. It refers to his appearance now and then. He is present now. He is not tucked away in some corner in heaven having a rest. No, he sees all that is going on right now. He sees what's going on here in Edmonton as well. And he's watching every move. That's also what James reminds us of. He says in James 5 verse 9, Do not grumble, brethren, against one another, that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the doors. But that does not mean, brothers and sisters, that you have to be afraid. For listen to what the catechism says in the last part. He will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but he will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joy and glory. Oh yes, we're all guilty before God, but if you are truly sorry for your sins and do not want to live in them, then the Lord God will also accept you as his own. Now you also know that you are one of his chosen ones. Sometimes it seems as if, as if it is such a long time before the Lord comes again. What is he waiting for? Well, he wants the number of his elect to be complete. In other words, he also wants to claim you. He wants you to be one of his chosen ones. And that is why it has now been already more than 2,000 years since his last appearance here on earth. But his love is so great that he wants you to be part of his kingdom. And for those who are unrepentant, also those in our midst, he suspends his final judgment. For he is a merciful God and he is a patient God. Congregation, he is coming again. He is coming to claim you and me. That is the promise we have on this wonderful day of rest and worship. And that is the promise we have every day of our life until he comes again. And so, congregation, live out of those wonderful promises. Amen.